Uh, open your Bibles to Psalm 73. If you have one of our Bibles uh, from the welcome table, it's on page 511. Like I said, we were uh, originally last week was going to be the end of this Psalms of Joy series. Uh, we were six weeks in there, and last week Luke Holderby uh, preached on Psalm 32 about the joy of forgiveness, right? And uh, but but I, I, as I introduced him, I, I came up and I talked about how I felt like this this uh, series was a little bit incomplete as we went through it. There's been this progression through the series that I think is important for us to see and, and to remember. So we, we began the series by focusing on who God is, right? On God himself. And we saw that, that God uh, loves us. That is, we saw his heart for us, he, that, he, that he draws us uh, toward him instead of away from him. That, that uh, God loves to be merciful to those who don't deserve it, right? And, and then we saw that, that his merciful heart and his faithful love is unchanging, that his love endures forever, right? That's the refrain from Psalm 118. And it gives us this confidence to approach him in humility, to cry out for his help, because uh, we all need rescue, don't we? From ourselves and the sin that enslaves us and, and from God's own righteous judgment and wrath against us because of our sin. And then uh, his love and his, mer- and his forgiveness wouldn't be merciful if he wasn't also perfectly, uh, perfectly, excuse me, just, right? And at the cross of Jesus Christ, God's justice and his mercy embrace. And uh, our sin didn't go unpunished. Jesus was, uh, or justice was served, but it was Jesus who was punished for our sin. And, and to understand the heart of God, that Jesus would be willing to take our place and that the Father would accept his payment because Christ's sacrifice was perfect and sufficient to secure our forgiveness. This is the continuation of the heart of God, that his love and his mercy endures forever because God loves to be merciful to those who don't deserve it, right? On Good Friday, we saw that Christ lamented as he suffered on the cross and, and, and showed that, that he's a God who knows our pain, who hears our cries, and who answers our prayers. And then on Easter Sunday, we saw how his resurrection seals the joy of, of redemption and frees us from the fear of death and always gives us a reason to sing. See, it's God's heart. If we think about the progression of this series, it's God's heart uh, and God's work revealed to us through Jesus Christ that draws us near to him, both in repentance and in peace, and, and leads us to experience the joy of forgiveness and the promise of eternity. This has been this progression that we've seen in the series from Psalm 103 to 118 to 22 to 30 to 51 to 32. God loves to show mercy to those who don't deserve it. So come to him, freely confess, and be forgiven. This is the gospel, right? The gospel in the Psalms. But there's one more thing that we need to look at. There's, there's one more question that we need to answer, and it's this. If God is merciful and good, and if he has forgiven us, and if he has guaranteed our future reward, then, then why does life continue to be so hard right now? And this is the question that Asaph will address for us in Psalm 73. Asaph was a Levite who served uh, under the king uh, under King David as a chief musician in the tabernacle sanctuary. The tabernacle was the, the temporary temple. It was the tent that was set up and torn down. 
And Asaph was one of three men who oversaw the worship at the tabernacle. And I think that might be one of the reasons this psalm is, is so helpful for us. Because one of Israel's main worship leaders has taken his own personal crisis of faith and he's turned it into a wisdom psalm that helps us think clearly about this life and the life to come and leads us to real satisfying joy in his presence that causes us to truly worship God for his goodness. And so I want to read Psalm 73. I want to pray for the Lord's help this morning and then we will dig in. Psalm 73 a psalm of Asaph. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray, for I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The, the imaginations of their hearts run wild. They, they mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things out loud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. Until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream, Lord. When arising, you will despise their image. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge so that I can tell all about, or about all you do. Lord, pray that you would use your word to erase all doubt of your goodness and nearness to us. Help us in our sufferings to find joy in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it okay for Christians to doubt? Some Christian circles encourage it as a measure of authentic faith. Like if you don't do it, then you're, you're not really following Jesus, right? While others question the authenticity of your faith if you do doubt. I think the answer depends on how you define the term. We need to do a lot of that these days. There's a difference between saying this can't be true and saying I know this is true, but I just can't see it right now. We get into dangerous territory when we question 
the reliability of the truth, when we question God's word. But we can actually grow deeper with Christ and strengthen our faith in him when we're honest about the things we don't understand and we trust the truth to give us clarity. You see, sometimes our experiences betray what we know to be true and they lead us to doubt God's goodness. That's why we should never let our experiences interpret the truth. We've got to let the truth interpret our experience. In other words, we can't let what we see around us dictate what we believe about God. We have to let Scripture do that. See, our experiences change from day to day. I'm not telling you anything new, but God's Word never changes. In Psalm 73, we're going to see what to do when we doubt. The flow of this psalm is broken up into three stanzas. The first stanza is verses 1 through 12. We're going to see Asaph's crisis of faith here. He knows what's true, but he's not experiencing it in his life. When he looks out into the world and he looks at what's going on in his life, he doesn't, it doesn't compute. In the second stanza, verses 13 through 17, we're going to see the the turning point in his crisis. Clarity comes not when Asaph turns away from God, but when he actually draws near to God. And then in the final stanza, verses 18 through 28, we're going to see the the resolution of the crisis. What uh, What was true before Asaph doubted will not only remain true forever, but it'll actually become the source of his joy even in his current sufferings. And so here's Here's our main idea for this morning. God's presence is our joy and our assurance of his goodness. So we need to look for him in our sufferings. God's presence is our joy and our assurance of his goodness. So we should look for him in our sufferings. Look at verse 1. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. Asaph starts with the conclusion here. What he knows to be true in spite of, of what he's experienced. This is what he's declaring. This is the, this is the conclusion that he's, he's reached. This is the foundational truth that's been established in Scripture. God is indeed good to his people. This is the refrain that you've probably heard me say and hopefully other people say here at Redeemer. God only ever is good and God only ever does good. You should write that in the in the uh, title headings of each book in your Bible, just so you remember that as you begin to read a new a new book. God only ever is good, and God only ever does good. God is indeed good to His people. See, those who trust Him can be confident of His goodness to them. But there was a time in Asaph's life when his confidence in that truth was shaken, and the rest of the psalm then is this flashback of that time. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet almost slipped and my steps nearly went astray. Asaph contrasts himself with God here. He says, God is indeed good to me, but, but as for me, I wasn't good to God. And we need to pay attention to two words here. Almost and nearly, in verse 2. Those are key words, and we're going to talk about why they're important when we get to the end of the psalm, but for now, I want you to, to remember those. We need to see what it was that caused Asaph to stumble and doubt. So look at verse 3. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's a clear contrast here in these first three verses between the pure in heart 
and between the arrogant, between the faithful and the unfaithful, between the righteous and the wicked. The pure in heart are those who follow God in humility, who who follow his command to love him with all their heart, soul, and and mind, and and strength laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And God promised them if they were faithful in following his commands, that they would prosper and have a long life in the land that he was giving to them. But Asaph's experience isn't lining up with this promise. It says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked, not the faithful. Listen to the first four verses of Psalm 1. This is the psalm that starts the whole songbook, the whole hymn book of the Old Testament, the whole psalms. This is the psalm that sets sort of the agenda for the rest of them and gives us a theme to work with. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff in the wind that blows away. Does that sound like Asaph's experience so far in Psalm 73? Does that sound like your experience? Psalm 73 immediately follows a psalm, 72, because that's how numbers work, right? Um, that talks about prosperity for the king. It's a prayer for the, for the king to prosper as he, as he uh, executes righteousness and justice and rescues the, affliction, uh, uh, the afflicted from oppression and violence. All throughout the Old Testament, God continuously promises faithful land, victory over enemies, prosperity of his people if they trust him and they obey his commands. The faithful flourish, the wicked perish. This is the message. That's the reality that's conveyed over and over again in the scriptures that Asaph and his contemporaries had available to them. And that reality means true through the rest of God's revealed word in the Bible that we now hold in our hands. They didn't have the New Testament, but it hasn't changed. God is indeed good to his people. That's the reality that Asaph expected. But that's not what Asaph was experiencing. And that's why he's struggling so much. But we need to look a little closer here for a moment at what he says in verses 2 and 3. What is it that almost caused his feet to slip? That almost uh, sent his steps nearly astray? It wasn't the prosperity of the wicked. It was his envy of them. See, envy is, envy is, is again, to define a term it's believing that you deserve what someone else has. Asaph saw the prosperity of the wicked and he thought to himself, that should be mine. That should be mine. Envy left unchecked turns to bitterness and resentment against God. When we convince ourselves that God is not treating us the way that we think he should be or that he is treating others the way that we think he should not be, then we've turned a blind eye to his grace. We have forgotten ourselves the truth of Psalm 103 that tells us God has not dealt with us as we deserve, right? He's not repaid us according to our iniquities. 
And it's not what's happening in the lives of others around us that causes our feet to slip. It's the sin that remains in our own hearts. It's not the prosperity of the wicked that caused Asaph to stumble. It was his own envy of them. He gives us this striking picture of the arrogance and prosperity of the wicked in verses 4 through 12. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does God, the most high, know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They are always at ease, and they increase their wealth. What is it that Asaph is envious of? It's the seemingly easy life of the wicked, right? He says they have an easy time until they die in verse 4. And then he comes back in verse 12 and he says they're always at ease. They increase their wealth. He bookends this section with that. That's his main idea. They have it so easy. Everything in between those verses is an elaboration of that ease. The picture that he paints here is, is of of people that are, are gluttonously indulging in whatever they want without fear of repercussion. They're so arrogant about it that they, they bulldoze others with their words and they dare God to do something about it. And they feel untouchable because they prosper even when they say and do wicked things and they let everyone know about it. The, the word picture here is, is it's just so intriguing to me. Their tongues strut across the earth. And they even begin to lead God's people astray with their boasting. And we can see why, why that would be alluring, right? They don't seem to experience trouble. They don't, they don't have afflictions like most people do. They have all they want and more. They keep getting wealthier and wealthier. God seems to be uninterested in holding them accountable. They, they have all of the followers on social media who drink in their overflowing words. It's tempting to want that kind of ease for ourselves, is it not? If given the choice between suffering and ease, isn't it harder to talk yourself out of the easy path? Don't we pray most often for difficulties and afflictions to go away? Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray that. We're having a prayer meeting for that exact thing, right? I'm not saying that we ought to ask God to give us more suffering in, uh, instead of uh, ease either. I simply want us to be reminded of how readily our minds and hearts want to turn away from pain and toward comfort and ease. But we need to understand that's a God-given longing, a God-given longing that we want God to fix a world that's broken, Right? And we want God to fix us who are broken. That's a good thing. But that longing needs to find its rest in the enduring promises of Scripture, not in the fleeting promises of this broken world. There's a reason why the prosperity gospel le continues to lead people astray. 
It promises health, wealth, and happiness in this life. It promises an easy life. It says you can eliminate suffering if you just have enough faith. But Jesus doesn't promise us health, wealth, and happiness in this life. In fact, he promises us suffering. He made that very clear to us when we went through Mark. Paul made that clear to us when we went through Ephesians. James made that clear to us when we went through James. In every other book we study together, it's going to make it clear. He promises us suffering because he suffered. First John tells us anyone who claims to abide in Christ must walk as Jesus walked. If the world hated him, Jesus says in a passage where he's talking about his abiding presence, John 15, if the world hated him, it's going to hate you too. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. Remember that from Mark chapter 8? That does not sound like always being at ease and increasing wealth, does it? You see, we know the bigger picture. We, we have the New Testament. We have the, the gospel revealed to us, the mystery of Christ that Paul talks about in Ephesians, that we now as Gentiles are, are grafted into the vine with the, the, the Israelites, with the faithful, with, with the followers of God, those who had faith in God in the Old Testament, those who have faith in, in God in Christ in the New Testament, were one. The gospel's been revealed to us through the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the reign of Jesus Christ. And yet, we still struggle at times as Asaph does, right? We grow tired of our suffering while the wicked seem to prosper. We come to our own crisis of faith. But even though Asaph doesn't have the full picture of Christ that we do, God has revealed enough to him in his word to bring Asaph to the turning point in his crisis. Look at verse 13. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. In verse 1, Asaph said, God is indeed good to Israel. In verse 13, the Hebrew word for indeed is there to mark the beginning of the new stanza in the psalm, but it doesn't show up in the English. And so we could, we could reword this, uh, to, this question to say, did I indeed purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? You may have an English translation that puts that verse as an assertive statement instead of a question. Surely, or indeed, in vain I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. The point is that Asaph is trying to reconcile the truth that God is indeed good to the pure in heart with his personal experience of affliction as one who has been faithful to follow God. In essence, he's thinking, aren't I pure in heart? If God is indeed good to the pure in heart, then why am I suffering while the wicked prosper? Why am I afflicted all day long and punished every morning? Asaph can't reconcile the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the faithful when he knows that God will punish the wicked and prosper his people. That's the message. Have you ever thought, I gave my life to Christ and this is what I get? How different would that thought be if you remembered that Christ gave you your life? 
that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for you, made you alive with Christ even though you were dead in your trespasses. What do we give? Nothing. What does God give? Everything. Life. Look at verse 15. If I had decided to say these things out loud, I would have betrayed your people. See, up to this point, everything that we've read has been a thought in Asaph's mind. He didn't want to say these things out loud because he he didn't want to lead God's people astray by causing them to doubt God's goodness. Doubting God's goodness was what led to the first sin in the Garden of Eden. If you think about that, that story with me for a minute, the devil tempted Eve by questioning what God had said and telling her that God was withholding something good. Did God really say, you can't eat from any tree? He twisted even that, right? Twisted the truth. You know how Genesis describes Eve's response? Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. She thought a tree could provide something that only God could. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You see, doubt is a dangerous thing when it causes us to turn away from God and start to define for ourselves what is good and what is not. But Asaph wasn't turning away from God. And he didn't want to turn anyone else away either. And so, so verse 1 is this expression of certainty. Remember, he began with the conclusion. He, he's, he's firm in that at the beginning of the psalm. And, and now we get to see through the rest of the psalm how he got there. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. And, and in verse 15, he's not suddenly changing his mind. He's not saying, this can't be true. He's saying, I know this is true, I just can't see it. And I don't want my struggle with understanding this to lead others to not believe it. So I'll keep my mouth shut. But hold on, because this is a psalm, right? This is a worship song. It's meant to be sung out loud by a whole lot of people when they gather together to worship God. Asaph is actually leading others through this struggle. Apparently, he had decided to say these things out loud. So how can he do that without betraying God's people? Look at verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary Then I understood their destiny. When Asaph looked out into the world, he saw the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous, and he couldn't make sense of it. It seemed hopeless. It's another key word right there. It seemed hopeless. In the Hebrew, he says, it was trouble in my eyes. 
But when he entered the sanctuary, do you know what his eyes saw? What he beheld there gave him understanding. See, the sanctuary is where God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It was God's presence that removed all doubt for Asaph of his goodness. When he entered the tabernacle and he saw these animals being sacrificed to atone for the sins of God's people, he witnessed the reality of God's justice and his mercy. And he stood inside the sanctuary, cleansed from his own sin through a substitute sacrifice, physically near to God in the sanctuary of the, of the tabernacle. And he led God's people in songs of praise as they too were cleansed by the substitute sacrifice so that they could draw near to God. Meanwhile, where were the wicked? The wicked who seemed to prosper, they were nowhere near the tabernacle. They were physically far from God and they had no atonement for their sins. And the physical picture brought clarity to the spiritual picture as Asaph gained an eternal perspective on his present reality. And he understood the ultimate destiny of the wicked. And that brings us to the resolution of the crisis. Look at verse 18. Indeed. There's that word again. You put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream, Lord. When arising, you will despise their image. Asaph says, this is what's true. Even though it seems, even though it seems like the wicked have an easy time, the path that they're walking on is a slippery one. And they won't actually get away with their wickedness. Proverbs tells us that pride comes before the fall. And God will make them fall into ruin. The rest of Psalm 1 affirms this. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, the wicked, maybe the wicked too, I have no idea who they are. But the way of the wicked leads to ruin. When the wicked ask, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? They'll get an answer. God will answer them with a detailed account of everything they've ever done and said because God does indeed know everything, including the secret thoughts of the heart. And despite what seems like a delay in justice, God will judge the wicked. And when he does, it will be swift and it will be complete and it will be terrifying for those who are apart from God. They will no longer know ease only devastation, only destruction, only torment and affliction and terror under God's forever righteous wrath. Because he's good. If God does not judge injustice, he's not a good God. And they will suffer this way forever because they have rejected his grace. The prosperity of the wicked is a phantom reality. It's a fleeting shadow. It's like a dream 
Asaph says here, that you quickly forget when you wake up. When the Lord rises to act, he will bring that dream to a quick and devastating end. Once Asaph understood this reality, he recognized the sinfulness of his own envy toward the wicked and his bitterness toward God. Look at verse 21. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. There's no candy coating this. He acted like a beast. Foolish. There's no way to spin what he says here. There's no way to downplay how he behaved. But there is a glimmer of hope, even though he was so foolish. You remember verse 2? When he was envious of the wicked but bitter toward God, he said his feet almost slipped that his steps nearly went astray. Why are those words important? Because he didn't slip. He didn't go astray. Why? Why can he say almost and nearly? Look at verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Asaph's feet almost slipped, and he nearly went astray. But he didn't fall into ruin, because even though he acted foolishly toward God, God acted mercifully toward him. And when Asaph behaved like a stupid sheep, The good shepherd guided him back to his sanctuary and he counseled him with his truth. And Asaph realized the ultimate blessing in all of his suffering, it's not prosperity, it's presence. God's presence. And even though Asaph is afflicted, God has not left him and God will not leave him. He will protect him and guide him in this life and afterward he will take him up in glory. Asaph will not meet the same end as the wicked. They may prosper now while he suffers, but their prosperity is temporary and so is his suffering. In eternity, the tables will be flipped and it'll be permanent. And this is the realization that brings Asaph to the conclusion in verse 25. Nothing in heaven or on earth is worth having more than God himself, not even a life of ease. So we have to ask, is that the conclusion that you've come to? Is that your... Is is God your greatest desire? I think it's easier for us to say yes than it is for us to show yes sometimes. You see, sometimes my flesh and my heart fail. Sometimes I grow weak and weary from the afflictions I face. Sometimes I feel guilty for feeling weak and weary because the afflictions that I have seem like nothing in comparison to my brothers and sisters across the world who are being actually persecuted and killed.
Sometimes I get disheartened by the prosperity of those who couldn't seem to care less about God. But it's in those times when I need to know that I am always with God and he holds my right hand. That he guides me with his counsel and afterward he will take me up in glory. It's in those times when my flesh and my heart fail and my feet begin to slip that I need to know that God is the strength of my heart. That he is my portion. Strength in verse 26 can also be translated as rock. God is the rock of my heart. He's my solid ground. My firm footing that keeps my feet from slipping. The reason we we almost slip but we don't is because God. He's our strength. He's our rock. He's our portion forever. He's my share of the inheritance. There's nothing that can be had by a person who is far from God that compares to what we've been given as those who are near to God. We have the joy and the assurance of his presence with us. Look at verse 27. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so that I can tell about all that you do. Do you notice how these last two verses parallel the first two verses? Both sections incorporate this phrase, but as for me. And in the first two verses, Asaph uses it to show how he almost faltered from faith in God's goodness. But in the last two verses, he uses that phrase to show how God's goodness kept his faith intact. What does Asaph say is God's goodness? It's his presence. See, God was with Asaph when Asaph began to stumble. And God's presence was Asaph's good. That's how he's good indeed to his people. And as a result, Asaph went from saying, I've envied the, the arrogant to I have made the Lord God my refuge. How is God good to the pure in heart? He gives us himself. If you're not convinced of God's goodness this morning, then, then look at Jesus Christ. He is the proof of God's goodness. He is God in the flesh who gave himself to us, who came to us. He's the only true righteous man who ever lived, perfectly innocent, not one sin to count against him. He never envied anybody. He never did any wrong. If anyone should have prospered in this life, it should have been Jesus. But he suffered and he died. So that every sinner who believes in a substitute sacrifice, the one that Christ gave when he died on the cross, that we could have life. We can be forgiven. We can be cleansed so that we can draw near to God and find something far greater than anything that this world has to offer, eternal life with him. Those far from God will indeed perish unless they turn from their sins and trust in Christ. You can't candy coat that. Scripture's very honest about that. But God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Do you hear that? 
That's how the wicked don't perish. They'll have everlasting life in Christ. It's Christ that is the goodness of God for us. He rose from the dead three days later. He's ruling and he's reigning over the world for the good of all his people. So Asaph was honest. Will you be honest this morning? Are you far from God? Then why not respond? Why not, why not admit it? Why not see the things of this world for what they are and what they can't give you? Why not respond to Christ, his goodness and mercy? Put your trust in him. God won't turn you away. That's the beauty of it. If you come to him, he'll draw you near. So then what about those of us who have put our hope in Christ? What should we do when we begin to doubt his goodness because we don't feel like we're experiencing it? I want to I just suggest four things here quickly as we close. We need to seek counsel from his word. We need to remember the end. We need to rest in his presence and we need to enter his sanctuary. We need to seek counsel from his word. You know, our emotions and our experiences make for really, really poor counselors. We can't allow them to change our view of an unchanging God. We need, to, we need constant guidance from God's unchanging word to remind us of who he is, regardless of what we feel or what we see in any given moment. We need to let scripture interpret our experience, not the other way around. God's truth remains true, even when our experiences make it feel like a lie. We need to seek counsel from God's word. We need to remember the end. Again, God's word is clear. Those who are far from God will perish unless they turn to Christ. And those who have turned to Christ will be brought near to God for all eternity. Remember that as a believer in Jesus, your suffering in this life has a time limit. Praise God. The moment you die or the moment Christ returns, guess what? Your suffering ends for good. And all that's left is eternal prosperity. The really good kind. And any injustice that you experience here will be brought to ultimate justice on the day of the Lord. But listen, because you know God is merciful and you have experienced his mercy, then you ought not to pray that, that the wicked would experience that. You ought to pray that the arrogant and the wicked would receive his mercy as you have. And then you ought to share the gospel with them because God exercises his mercy when people hear the gospel and believe it. We need to remember the end. We need to rest in his presence. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in every believer to comfort and counsel us in the truth. When you go through something that makes God feel like he's far away, he's not. We need to rest in the reality of his nearness. His presence is your good. God may not reveal to you why you go through what you do, but he will reveal himself to you as you go through it if you seek him. You ought to memorize verses 23 through 28 of Psalm 73. 
Use it to guide your prayers. Ask God to help you experience the reality of this beautiful truth. See, prayer by God's design is one of the best ways that we can rest in his presence. We're talking to God. Last thing we need to do is enter his sanctuary. Now, we know that there's no more temple in Jerusalem. In Ephesians, Paul tells us, reminds us, that because the Holy Spirit dwells in us as believers, we're being built together as God's living temple for the dwelling place of the Spirit. God has designed it in his goodness so that we experience his presence most fully when we're together with his people. And he's given us a way to enter the sanctuary on the first day of every week, the Lord's Day, Sunday morning. And when we gather, we proclaim his truth to one another, we, we pray with one another, we sing his praises with one another, we remind each other of his goodness, we draw near to God together with our consciences cleansed by the finished work of Jesus Christ, and we make the Lord our refuge together, and we tell about all he does. I'm thankful for Zoom, but it will never be able to do what the physical gathering can do. If Asaph let his experience dictate what he believed about God, you know what the only conclusion he could come to was? God's not good. But God is indeed good to his people because God is indeed present with his people. See, sometimes our experiences betray what we know to be true, and they lead us to doubt. But God's presence is our joy and our assurance of his goodness, and so we should look for him when we can't see him in our sufferings. We may begin to stumble, but he will keep our feet from slipping. Our steps may nearly go astray, but he is always with us. He will take us by the right hand and guide us with his counsel. And afterward, oh, afterward, he will take us up in glory. It's coming. What joy is there for us as we continue to be afflicted while the wicked continue to prosper? We have great joy in the assurance of God's presence. God's presence is our good. Amen? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you have given us yourself in Christ through your spirit by your word, and in your church. We pray that when we don't see you, we would look in all of those places and find you. When our experiences betray us, Lord, help us see the God who never does. Bring brothers and sisters into our lives to speak your truth to us, to counsel us according to your word. Let us experience the peace that comes in the indwelling presence of your spirit. And let us rejoice together as co-laborers in the gospel and fellow sufferers until Christ calls us home or the heavens open in all his glory and our Redeemer comes for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.